Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm our Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And uh, today we're going to talk about really an innovative new idea for containing Medicare spending. Now, leaders at present in Washington, D.C. right now, leaders from both political parties are grappling, or at least pretending to grapple, with uh, America's $14 trillion national debt and forecast that the federal government will add another trillion dollars to that national debt every year for as far as the eye can see. Now, all sides in this debate agree that Medicare is a, is a large contributor to the national debt, that containing Medicare spending is essential to getting the debt under control. And one of the reasons for this is that Medicare spending per enrollee has traditionally grown at about two and a half percentage points faster than GDP. And right now, uh, or starting this year really, Medicare enrollment therefore compounding that problem of per enrollee cost. Medicare enrollment is going to begin growing rapidly now that the baby boom generation has begun to retire. So if Medicare keeps growing uh, at, uh, or per enrollee spending keeps growing at 2.5 percentage points faster than GDP, it would someday consume all of federal spending uh, and, and eventually all of U.S. GDP. Now that obviously isn't going to happen, and as the adage goes, if something cannot go on forever, eventually it must stop. But no one can really foresee exactly how that rapid growth in Medicare spending is going to stop. And there's, there's no shortage of ideas about how to do it, how to restrain Medicare spending. But these ideas never seem to go anywhere, in part because somebody will inevitably scream, death panel, or you're trying to throw grandma off a cliff. And so into this, into this debate, Professor Lawrence Helmchen and his colleagues inject a novel idea that we're, which we'll be discussing today. Now, Professor Helmchen is an associate professor of, professor of health administration and policy at George Mason University's College of Health and Human Services. Uh, we'll be discussing an idea that he and some co-authors have advanced in a paper that I understand will be published soon, although I'm not sure I know what, I'm allowed to know which journal it is in yet. And uh, Dr. Helmchen also researches uh, the potential of provider-issued outcome warranties, which would ensure policyholders against easily verifiable adverse treatment outcomes such as readmission after cancer therapy or 30-day survival after undergoing heart bypass surgery. Uh, commenting on, uh, on, on this, this innovation will be uh, Professor Mark Pauley, who's the Bendheim professor, of, uh, Bendheim professor in the Department of Healthcare Management at the Wharton School and a professor of economics at the University of Pennsylvania. And me, yours truly. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and let uh, Professor Helmchen present his idea. And again, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you very much, Mike. Um, it's a real pleasure for me to have the opportunity to present this idea to this group. And um, I'm very much looking forward to Mark Pauly's comments to, um, to uh, get started, uh, this is now joint work with uh, Bill Encinosa at um, HRQ and Georgetown University, Mike Chernow at Harvard University, and Rich Hirth at the University of Michigan. Um, as a quick backdrop, and Mike already gave an excellent introduction to the topic, <clears throat> uh, Medicare spending as a percentage of gross domestic product has been increasing <clears throat> uh, over the years, and basically every every year since in inception, only in the um, years from in the late 90s uh, was there a, s a short slowdown, but that um, did not stop it from picking up again. Um, another a measure of the impending insolvency or and fiscal uh, problems of the Medicare program is given in this chart that shows uh, general revenue as a percentage of Medicare spending from 1990 through. Uh, 2030, so the latter numbers are obviously projections, 
And um, since uh, 2000, there's been a steep increase in that uh, percentage. Um, now, it's, uh, tw in 2010, it was estimated to be 49%, almost 50%. So that's prompted the um, actuaries and the trustees to issue um, warnings, funding warnings already. Um, to give you a, an idea of uh, the clinical side of this problem, uh, let me present to you briefly um, the treatment options for prostate cancer. And uh, uh, there are five of them that I'm um, just going to list here. Uh, active surveillance, uh, radical prostatectomy. Uh, none of these are actually very pleasant. Um, uh, number two is, a, is surgery. And then the three, four, and five, they're radiation forms of treatment for prostate cancer. Now, prostate cancer was called uh, the litmus test for healthcare reform by David Leonhardt of the New York Times. Um, because uh, although these treatments are very different in the way they're applied, um, one recent review found that no specific treatment for localized prostate cancer has been proven to be superior than another, particularly among patients aged 65 years and older. Uh, the big problem comes when we look at the cost. So here I'm showing you health expenditures directly related to prostate cancer by the initial management strategy. Um, it starts with about $1,300 for active surveillance, goes up to about $50,000 for IMRT, which is a one form of radiation therapy. And um, this problem is compounded by the fact that uh, only 42% of prostate cancer patients currently opt for the cheapest option, active surveillance. And the next cheapest option is more than 10 times as expensive. So more than 50% of prostate cancer patients opt for a, a therapy that is more than, or at least $17,000. Um, the current Medicare status quo is essentially plagued by the problem that no one is really considering cost. Program administrators are unable to ration statutorily uh, the um, uh, there are statutes governing Medicare's coverage decisions that prevent explicit consideration of cost. Uh, they're also unwilling to ration. Uh, if they did this across the board, this might jeopardize access. If they targeted specific drugs, devices, or services, this might uh, ignore patient heterogeneity in the benefits. And Congress has been known to reverse rationing decisions. Uh, providers, uh, for their part, also have few incentives, especially if um, under the fee-for-service payment, uh, in which uh, about three-quarters of Medicare beneficiaries are enrolled. So that may encourage overuse. Um, if you propose episode-based or what's been called bundled payment, that seeds mistrust among patients because now patients cannot distinguish whether a recommendation for cheaper treatment results from the clinical assessment by the provider or from the um, fact that the provider just uh, makes a little more money on that patient. Um, providers, in general, don't want to be seen as the ones denying treatment or balancing the books on the backs of Medicare beneficiaries. And they're not trained to do it. Now, patients, they also have few demand-side incentives. The medical benefit under Medicare is essentially a use-it-or-lose-it proposition. You, only, you can only access the resources that you have a claim on by using medical care. Uh, supplemental coverage that um, applies to 90% of Medicare beneficiaries eliminates co-pays. And the result is moral hazard. Patients consider only benefit, not the cost of care. Um, if you then try to introduce or raise cost-sharing requirements, that would hurt low-income and risk-averse beneficiaries. And then if you try to um, 
uh, mitigate these consequences, and by introducing means-tested subsidies, uh, that would raise effective marginal tax rates. So is there anything we can do? Well, to go back to the basics, health insurance basically faces a trade-off between risk protection and moral hazard. So if we, we just decompose the expected cost of treatment, which is the basis for the claims experience and the, the, the premium, uh, that is given by the probability of a diagnosis multiplied by the expected treatment cost given that diagnosis. And the first um, uh, probability of a diagnosis, that's what we refer to as ex-ante moral hazard. So um, if you um, insure against the diagnosis, you're more likely to incur the risk that you will be diagnosed. The second is referred to exposed, as exposed moral hazard. So the, um, <clears throat> by knowing that all your treatment costs is covered by the insurer, you have less incentive to really consider costs in choosing treatment. Now, there's one um, very elegant and, uh, and efficient way to eliminate exposed moral hazard. Uh, that would be via indemnity benefits. So this would be a diagnosis contingent lump sum for the beneficiary that would be made available upon diagnosis. Um, so that would address the exposed moral hazard. And it's been proposed uh, starting with uh, Mark Pauly, who's going to be my discussant today, and then about every in 10-year intervals, there have been uh, reviews and um, uh, renewals of this proposal, most recently in a book by Roger Feldman. Um, and today, I want to look at one opportunity that we might apply this idea um, in a slightly modified version. Uh, so we might also simply uh, use a taxonomy of um, distinguishing between high and low ex-ante moral hazard and high and low ex-post moral hazard. And the, um, the idea would be most suitable for conditions such as cancer that have relatively low ex-ante moral hazard and pretty high um, ex-post moral hazard. Um, the idea is a shared savings supplement for choosing low, less costly treatment. So this would, in essence, we would offer a supplemental cash benefit for choosing low-cost care. Uh, in that way, we would retain the requirement that the beneficiary consume some form of medical care. And instead of paying more for more expensive care, as is commonly the copayment is commonly applied, beneficiaries would now get paid for choosing less expensive care. That's the essence of the proposal. Uh, this would raise beneficiaries' opportunity costs of choosing more costly treatment. Um, ideally, it would be unrestricted, so it could be used for non-medical consumption. It would actually be analytically identical to positive copayments, except for income effects. And it could be, and we propose testing it as a pilot program. Now, it's, it's been proposed every in 10-year intervals. What, what motivates the current interest? Uh, one is certainly the impending insolvency of the Medicare program. Uh, but there are also expensive new therapies with uh, predictable utilization patterns, yet doubtful benefits that's, that have come online. And so there is a growing concern about worsening cost effectiveness among the newer, newer treatments that have become available. Uh, there's also been an increasing demand for a comparative effectiveness research, uh, and uh, that's um, going hand in hand with the development of genetic predictors for the treatment response. And finally, there's some interesting behavioral economics aspects that uh, are of greater interest to academic economists than for, to policymakers at this point. Um, to uh, walk you through this, how this would work, um, you'd have to define the eligible diagnosis. Uh, those would uh, refer to those diagnoses where treatment uh, options vary widely in cost, where there's a sizable fraction of beneficiaries who are currently consuming the most expensive care. Um, 
And then you would also look at, you'd have to define which treatments to actually include and which treatments then to supplement with a cash benefit. And then uh, once you did this, uh, you would uh, try to figure out the cost minimizing payment level, at least um, that would be one objective. Um, and to illustrate how this would work, to illustrate the mechanics of this uh, idea, uh, let me walk you through this quickly um, with a diagram. I'm showing you here on the x-axis the number of beneficiaries. Uh, for simplicity, I'm only considering two forms of treatment. One is cheap, one is expensive. The um, expensive one and, and the, the overall cost uh, to the program is given by the two areas, the light blue and the darker blue area. What would happen if we offered now to supplement the consumption of the cheap treatment with a cash benefit? Um, that would raise the cost for those beneficiaries who were already consuming and choosing the cheap treatment. Um, at the same time, uh, uh, so, so this would, this would um, if, if nothing else happened, this would raise the program cost, obviously, because we're now um, paying more for beneficiaries who would have chosen the cheap treatment anyway. And, but it might be compensated by those beneficiaries who were choosing the expensive treatment and who now switch to the cheaper treatment. So these are what I call the switchers. And uh, we would uh, reap some savings by paying a reduced cost um, for the uh, medical care by those who had switched from the expensive treatment to the cheap treatment. And so in determining the net savings, you would compare the red area um, against the green area. So you would um, trade off raising the cost of beneficiaries who are already choosing the cheap treatment against the savings that you reap from those who switch from the expensive to the cheap treatment. So a larger supplement, and now you could experiment with various supplement levels. A larger supplement will, on the one hand, reduce the savings per switcher, but it will also raise the number of switchers. And so this is an empirical question, if you want to figure that out, and that's why we're proposing it as a pilot program. In general, we can say that savings will increase um, with the cost differentials among treatments. So we need, um, as I mentioned already, this idea is most applicable for treatments that vary widely in treatment costs, such as prostate cancer, and I'll um, be talking about a different example soon. Um, so uh, this, would, this is a proxy for the potential savings per switcher. Um, the savings will also increase with the number of beneficiaries who are currently choosing expensive care, so this would uh, constitute the reservoir of switchers. And then um, you also want to uh, make sure that um, beneficiaries actually have an incentive to switch when we offer them a cash supplement. So this actually gets to the idea of the moral hazard and the elasticity of, um, of demand for the cheap treatment. Now, to how would this work uh, with actual numbers? I'm drawing here on an article by Peter Back that was published in the March issue of Health Affairs, where he looked at um, a proposal for provider payment for metastatic lung cancer. I'm showing you seven different chemotherapy options, and they vary widely in cost, um, more than fivefold, in fact, from $1,322 to more than $7,000 per month. So all these regimens are recommended by the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. And so how, would this, how might this benefit work in practice? Well, the current benefit, we can compute the, if we assume that uh, 47% 47 beneficiaries out of 100 currently choose the most expensive option, uh, Medicare would be paying 
about $333,000 per month for these beneficiaries. And if we assume that for simplicity that the remainder um, choose the cheapest option, 53% uh, choose a treatment that costs Medicare about $1,300 uh, per month, then the total cost to Medicare would be above slightly more than $400,000. So this is just a hypothetical calculation to illustrate it with numbers. The proposed benefit, would um, all it would do, instead of paying a co-payment to Medicare um, for consuming the cheapest treatment, now beneficiaries who chose the cheapest treatment would receive uh, $330 in addition to the actual chemotherapy. And so the question now is, will this additional payment, uh, instead of paying $330, uh, you receive $330, will this change uh, motivate some current beneficiaries who are opting for the high-cost treatment to switch to the low-cost treatment? Well, if, there are eight, if eight out of 47 uh, beneficiaries who were choosing the high-cost treatment switch, then the resulting monthly cost of Medicare would be just below $400,000. Again, these are very hypothetical numbers. They depend on the fraction, on the distribution of beneficiaries across the different treatments, but they're just meant to illustrate how one might go about in calculating the um, fiscal impact for the program. Um, there are two more aspects to this um, proposal. One is it's perfectly compatible with supplemental coverage. 90% of Medicare beneficiaries are currently in supplemental coverage, and that's, they're perfectly insulated from the cost differentials. So med the program could offer the supplement, the cash supplement, separately from the supplemental coverage. Uh, the proposal is also compatible with current and new forms of provider payments, such as bundled payment. And so the, um, there's one issue that uh, the current fee-for-service structure may offer uh, distorted prices that um, distort provider decisions. And so if you want to um, address those, you might also want to pair the demand-side incentives that we're proposing with supply-side incentives, such as bundled payment. Um, as I mentioned already, there would be a benefit of a reduced uh, patient moral hazard. Um, now that um, patients would be incentivized to inquire more thoroughly about the uh, real benefits they're getting from the high-cost treatment that might incentivize them to, uh, in, uh, to, to demand more comparative effectiveness research. And so we might get um, a renewed effort on the part of uh, providers to explain better why the high-cost treatment is clinically superior or the better choice, uh, because we've just made it a little more painful for beneficiaries to go with a high-cost treatment. Um, that, in turn, might also stimulate more patient-centered innovation. So right now, um, uh, manufacturers of treatments are primarily addressing the oncologists. Uh, with this proposal, we'd hand over more, um, thank you, more um, decision-making authority uh, and incentives to the patients, so the, um, the locus of competition might shift towards um, patients and, and their interest in um, um, getting treatments that have fewer side effects and are most effective. If uh, we even took this one step further and allowed providers of chemotherapy options to compete, and then if Medicare passed on the, the, the resulting price differentials from competition to patients, that might also reveal um, the true cost structures. Uh, there would be fewer, there would, well, this proposal would not exacerbate uh, cream skimming on the part of providers more than it already does. 
and it would um, provide an added benefit to those who prefer palliative care. So in, effectively, um, the cash supplement for choosing low-cost care, such as active surveillance in the case of prostate cancer or palliative care more generally, ensures beneficiaries against uh, not liking the aggressive treatment even when there's no supplement that's offered. And finally, um, there's some progressive elements in this proposal. Uh, let me just draw your attention to the income distribution of Medicare beneficiaries. These are 2006 figures, but uh, close to half were, um, had a median, uh, an annual income of less than $20,000. The um, about half of um, Medicare beneficiaries are at 200% or below the federal poverty level. So we were offering, by offering them cash, that um, um, will have an important uh, consequence for, for um, the poorest beneficiaries. Um, and to put this in relation, um, Medicare is already spending, um, or was spending in 2006, about $14,000 for um, those beneficiaries who were on Medicaid. So um, uh, when, when those, that almost matches their income figures. So you have a disparity in the um, access to very expensive medical care when, um, these, when a lot of Medicare beneficiaries do not have access to a lot of resources in other domains. There's also an income gradient in the way Medicare beneficiaries access um, a cancer screening and so um, by removing the prospect of suddenly being faced with a, uh, a relatively large stream of out-of-pocket uh, payments, um, we would incentivize poor Medicare beneficiaries in particular to, um, to undergo screening, or at least we would take the fear out of a cancer diagnosis. There are implementation challenges. and. Um, uh, I mentioned already the calibration of the cash payment is uh, one key component. Uh, we would want to ensure that uh, patients are competent so that they're not biased, so they're in fully informed about the trade-offs between the clinical trade-offs, between the various treatment options that, that are made available. We'd want to ensure that patients are autonomous in the sense that they're not pressured from third parties to go for a treatment that's now paired with a cash benefit. Uh, we want to address or su and suppress fraud uh, that would consist of falsely claiming an eligible diagnosis. We'd want to minimize abuse in the sense that some might try to collect the supplement and opt for the expensive treatment. Uh, we'd also want to address regret uh, that you've chosen one treatment and then new medical technology or information about comparative effectiveness become available. And there are also regulatory issues to implement this in the current, uh, with the current statutes that are on the books. And it, uh, now we're a little more optimistic about this proposal, given that there's three stakeholder groups uh, should find this appealing. Uh, one is it's, we're giving patients cash. Uh, who doesn't like it? Um, uh, the other idea um, is that it would uh, allow physicians to retain more of their professional autonomy because we would now, um, they would not uh, be accused of uh, considering costs in the treatment decisions as they might be under a bundled payment. And if it indeed saved money, uh, this would offer relief for taxpayers and premium payers. So in conclusion, shared saving supplements for choosing less costly treatment, uh, they would offer the prospect of reducing moral hazard in treatment choice. Uh, they'd unlock um, the Medicare benefit for non-medical consumption. They might rein in program costs, and they might stimulate patient-centric 
comparative effectiveness research, and innovation and treatment. Okay, well, um, so I am actually delighted to see that uh, Lawrence and colleagues have taken up the idea of uh, insurance based on indemnity, um, have done some imaginative things with it. Pure indemnity insurance is a little bit um, of a, the uh, kind of person you, or if it was a person, you wouldn't want to invite it to dinner, but they've managed to dress it up in a coat and tie and even potentially make it uh, uh, acceptable to Medicare in a, in a very imaginative way. Um, as Lawrence mentioned, I wrote about this uh, many, many years ago, and as I tell my students, I'm not repeating myself, I'm just trying to be consistent. Um, I still think it's a good idea, and I, I definitely think it's a good idea uh, to propose it at this time. Heaven knows uh, we need to do something about both the future of Medicare and, for that matter, the future of all health care in the United States, and this is a potential arrangement that might uh, allow uh, more rational uh, more rational incentives to be put in place so that um, the consequences of the decisions that patients and physicians make facing those more rational incentives might be better than they are now. Um, in my comments, I'm going to kind of go back to the uh, basic idea of indemnities and show you, uh, at least in my take of it, where this system fits, where this particular arrangement fits in. Use that to suggest uh, some um, um, emendations or additions or additional bells and whistles that might be put on it. Um, talk a bit about where and when this might actually make sense or where you could actually do it. And then finally come to some comments on what it's all got to do with the uh, out-of-control cost growth of Medicare. So uh, let me begin with uh, the, the basic idea of indemnity insurance. Um, um, it sounds a little strange in the context of medical care, but it's how almost all other in consumer insurances we have work. So I've got um, seven-year-old Mercedes, or it's my wife's car. Uh, we have collision coverage on it. Um, if it should happen that uh, one of us is uh, not necessarily the world's greatest driver and uh, we have a fairly serious fender bender, it's built like a tank, so nobody's going to get hurt. Uh, but there's, let us imagine, a whole bash in the whole side of the car. What, um, at least an idealized version, my auto insurer will do, they'll send out uh, or I'll take it in to somebody who will assess the damage. And then at least one version of it, it's not sort of the current version, but it's kind of the old-fashioned version, that they say, well, we figure that damage is $3,000. We'll send you a check for $3,000. You can then do what you want. You can drive around with an ugly car put the $3,000 in the bank. That's choosing the low-cost treatment option that Lawrence was talking about. You can get the uh, car repaired for $3,000 because that's what it costs and be entirely free out of out-of-pocket payment and the most beautiful world an insurance economist could think of. You're fully protected against the risk. Um, you could, of course, just junk the car uh, and buy a new one, uh, or you could not only pay to have that bash fixed, but all the other nicks and dings in the other side of the car, pay $5,000 and top up and get a car better than new. 
uh, at that point. So those would be all options. And in a way, what we're trying to do is face people with the same sort of calculus when they get sick. So imagine, I guess the story would be, the bad news is you've got prostate cancer. The good news is we're going to send you a check for $10,000. That would be the simple version of it. Uh, if you choose the watchful waiting, you pocket the difference. So that's, I think, from Lawrence's number, close to $8,000 plus. If you go to the most costly option, you'll have to shell out the difference uh, or anywhere in between. Now, their um, system titrates the amount of uh, uh, money you save by choosing low-cost option more in a more sophisticated way than the simple version, but that's that's basically uh, the idea. Um, and so uh, the question would be, uh, when would this make sense? And I guess I put that in two contexts. One is when would it make sense for Medicare so we could get it through the uh, the, uh, politi the political police and, and the ARP into Medicare, and then the other. Sometimes I think maybe it, this idea is better tried out in the private sector. Might a private insurer, or for that matter, maybe a Medicare Advantage plan, if it was allowed, uh, want to experiment with offering this, and who would want to buy it, and who would want to buy what? Uh, well, uh, one way to think about the situation is to imagine that there are three different possible characteristics of various diseases. One would be uh, like something like a fractured femur. Uh, there's only one way to treat it. It really doesn't matter. Nobody would want to run around with a broken leg, so it really doesn't matter who you are and what your preferences are, and there's only one way to treat it. This would work perfectly for that. It, say it costs $4,000. You'd get a check for $4,000 notionally. You would get your broken leg set, and you'd be good as new, and you'd be fully protected. The other extreme, uh, Lauren sort of mentioned this, is back pain, where nobody's quite sure who has what level of illness and pain, and it cannot be well-defined. And to say, well, if you tell me you have back pain, I'm going to send you a check for $10,000 would be a license to steal from Medicare. But how would you determine it? Uh, you know, we all know those stories of people who've retired on disability because of bad backs and then are focused, uh, are, are, are uh, photographed um, uh, uh, pitching, pitching hay into the upper part of the barn. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's too vague. It wouldn't apply there. Uh, the real interesting cases are kind of the ones in between, and this, I guess, gets to the major theoretical point. Why should, couldn't we have indemnity insurance for everything in healthcare? Some people have proposed that. There's a classic article by Goldberg and Greenberg where they proposed, well, they actually said, this is how it works with dental insurance. If you need major dental work, at least in those days, the doctor, the dentist would send in your films and propose diagnosis plan. A dentist at the insurer would examine the films, decide how much it was going to cost to repair the damage, and send a check for that amount. No moral, ha no ex post moral hazard in uh, dental insurance in that setting. Um, in um, uh, other kinds of healthcare, things may be less cut and dried, but there's obviously a spectrum here, and the more imaginative we can be about distinguishing. Basically, the problem is if the insurer can't tell how sick you are, then indemnity insurance won't work very well because you could be really sick. 
And if the insurer said, we're giving you a lump sum payment, you could end up with an awful lot paid out of pocket or a lot of suffering, and you wouldn't want that. Uh, but the more precisely the insurer can tell how your state of, uh, of illness, the more closely it can tailor a payment to pay you just what you need uh, to get it fixed. So that's sort of the idea. And the, so the continuum here, or the characteristic of cases where this would work pretty well versus not is how easy it is for the insurer to determine how sick the person really is. That's sort of the important thing to keep in mind. Okay, so uh, so one ex so the two extremes are uh, either nobody can tell how sick you are, in which case this won't work, or any fool can tell how sick you are, in which case it would work very easily. And then there's this in-between case. I guess I would distinguish two variants there, actually. One is case A, where um, there are two different uh, treatments for my illness, uh, a platinum treatment and a bronze treatment. Um, if you, if the insurance, Medicare or whatever, allows me and my doctor to choose the platinum treatment, we will choose the platinum treatment. So there's not variation so much in the severity of illness, but variation in preferences. In principle, a market could handle that, but Medicare, of course, now doesn't. And when I go on Medicare, of course, I've got to keep teaching until I'm about 85 to keep from going on Medicare. But when that happy day comes, definitely I'll opt for the platinum treatment rather than the bronze treatment if given a choice. Uh, the other version, which is the more subtle version, is the one where the variation is not in your preferences but is in the state of health, how sick you really are, and that's the much harder one. Um, okay, so that's sort of the setup, and maybe that helps you to think about why this is a great idea and where it will work and where it won't and where you'll get pushback. Uh, in terms of design, I guess I'm thinking of a couple of three things here. One is... Um, you can be more creative. I don't know whether you can if you're Medicare. You've got to be careful there. But in the world, you could be more creative in thinking about structure of incentives. So um, obviously, there's all sorts of ways of titrating how much you save if you choose which cheaper option. In some sense, that's equivalent to choosing where do you set the indemnity payment, where the payments go from you save money if you do less costly to you spend money if you do more costly. And picking that point, I think Lawrence talked about this too, is something which at least a market-oriented person might want to allow beneficiaries to choose rather than having it chosen uniformly and uniquely for every person, no matter what their preferences. I'll kind of come back to that. But you could choose uh, a, a low-cost uh, point uh, that would give you really cheap Medicare insurance but would subject you potentially to the risk of high out-of-pocket payment or high suffering or low-cost one. So that's, that's sort of one dimension. Another dimension is you could um, temper the coverage, particularly on the upside. So you could say, well, um, as, as in his example, if, if, if your cost is at this level, just the crossover point, you pay zero out of pocket. The sort of daunting thing is, what if I really need that super expensive treatment? Somebody must. Um, and then what? Well, you could say a kind of stop-loss feature. For a while, there's a corridor where if you want the more expensive treatment, it's 100% your own money. But eventually, you could kick in a kind of stop-loss or supplemental coverage that would protect a person from a catast the catastrophic event of being an awful lot sicker than they look. 
That's basically the problem. What if you are the person for whom the only effective treatment for your out-of-control prostate cancer is that really expensive one? Of course, some people, the Dartmouth crowd, will claim nobody ever needs the most expensive treatment, but I don't really believe that. Somebody does, and what if you're that unlucky person? So this would potentially protect you, although, as Lawrence implied, you could, I suppose, buy supplemental coverage, but then if you did that, you'd recreate some of the moral hazard. But that's the trade-off. You'd recreate the moral hazard then at the high end, but you'd also provide protection, and we may not want to leave people totally naked. Uh, the, um, the two uh, features or changes, potential changes in the system that I think would make this approach much, much more feasible, the first one is personalized medicine. Um, so there have been, as I think many people know, some amazing developments in biology in which various kinds of genetic tests actually allow um, the system or the doctor to determine how sick you really are, how bad your cancer really is. I think that's what we're looking at for that prostate cancer. Do you have the rapidly growing kind where you better get the really expensive treatment right away, or do you have the slow-growing growing kind that almost all of us old guys will eventually get, but thankfully we'll die from something else before we die from prostate cancer. So which is it going to be? Well, if somebody could tell in advance, then you could tell who should get what indemnity level uh, or who should get what situation, and you'd be able, this actually would be totally cool to merge the frontier of modern science with the design of insurance. I mean, what could be more exciting? <laughs> Uh, this would really work. That's the part I'm pretty optimistic about, actually, and think it would be fascinating just to see get a get somebody who's a real expert on personalized medicine and see how far you could get. The other is a little trickier. Most of the time, the insurer doesn't know how sick I am, but there's somebody who knows. It's my doctor, and if only we could get my doctor to level with the insurance company that could actually improve the functioning of insurance markets. Now, I'm prepared here to make a confession. I have sat in my underwear in the um, doctor's examining room where the doctor says, there are two different treatments for you. One of them will require a higher out-of-pocket payment than the other. How about if I write a prescription for the one that requires the low out-of-pocket payment? And I say yes. I should say no. I'm determined to control the growth of health spending in the United States, but I'm not that noble. But uh, if... Uh, and there is a conflict here. Who, After all, who's the doctor working for, me or the insurance company? But the, the idea would be that if doctors, uh, at least in some setting, it could be made acceptable for them to tell the truth to the insurance company about who's really sick and who isn't. A lot of this could work an awful lot better than it does now. And some of the arrangements in which doctors become employees of ACOs, which effectively receive capitated payments from Medicare. Some people are talking about that as the wave of the future. I'm terrified about that too, but if it happened, at least it might get the doctor incentives right. So that's a trickier business, but I think it could uh, actually work. So, uh, so those are all some positive comments. Um, um, uh, I wanted to come to two negative ones. Uh, or potentially negative ones. So the full fruition of this, I think, would allow people, in a, uh, you could imagine, to say, I'm going to choose a low level of indemnity payment to save myself money. You know that all hell would break loose if that happened with Medicare beneficiaries. Lawrence showed the numbers. Actually, the fraction of people 
Over 65 below the poverty line is the lowest of any demographic group, but that's because Social Security just puts you between 100 and 200 percent. But, but all those people, they'd be, they'd be sacrificing their lives in order to save money on their health insurance. We can't let that happen. Well, can we get anywhere with the idea of a market arrangement in which people would choose their indemnity levels? Here I have a modest proposal to make, actually a modification of one I made about um, selling kidneys, which is, yes, some people should be allowed to choose the low-cost indemnity plan, but only if they have an MBA. Uh, and then they would presumably know what they're doing and have a sufficiently high income that they could choose that, and we wouldn't claim that they are um, um, uh, um, uh, impoverishing themselves for the benefits of society. So that's that. Uh, so I think you could actually go further with that. Finally, what about cost containment? Well, uh, it is certainly the case that some of our high cost is due to the fact that people are using um, services, I believe, of positive benefit compared to the alternative, but whose benefit is a lot less than the incremental cost. That's the definition of the consequence of moral hazard. And uh, re reducing that would be a good thing. And I think it would give Medicare three good years, maybe, you know, some time. But, but the real reason why Medicare costs are rising is not because moral hazards are getting worse and worse. It's because the darn NIH keeps inventing stuff. Actually, we're distressed because lately they haven't been inventing at nearly the same rate as they did 10 years ago. But they still keep inventing these things, these cancer drugs and the robotic and all of that, that are better. They just cost a lot more money. And um, somebody's got to say, uh, we can't afford that, or we can't afford to raise that money through taxes, which is the worst way to try to raise money. But uh, nobody wants to say it. A version would be uh, to say, um, again, I'm thinking of this as flying, applying at first to MBAs only, but you could choose a Medicare plan uh, where uh, uh, one of your choices would be, at what rate would my indemnity payment or my zero point grow over time? What, what um what rate of growth in spending am I willing to accept? If I choose a low rate of growth of spending, then my premiums wouldn't grow very rapidly, and I'd have more money to spend on other things, and golf shoes and all of that. Uh, uh, but if I wanted the, the latest, I could do that, but I'd take away some money from other things. Um, um, to some extent, that's my um, understanding of what Representative Ryan is proposing. Fortunately, uh, as I suggested also in something I wrote for AEI some years ago, he's not proposing to apply this to current Medicare eligibles, so I'm, I'm off the hook. But uh, some of the people here, you could all think of uh, thinking of that as your future and deciding whether you want to save money now for when you retire so you can buy the high-tech plan or not. So my MBA students tell me I never make it in business because I think of marketing slogans for these plans like last year's technology at last year's premiums. Um, but um, for some people who want to spend their incremental income on things other than health care for pity's sake, that may be a better alternative than being impoverished or impoverishing their grandchildren, whichever comes first. Uh, and so we may want to think about that. But I think it's, it's rather more daunting, um, but probably would pay some serious thinking to try to link the idea of an indemnity model developed more or less for a static context to a context in which uh, 
we have a world of um, um, uh, an increasing supply of beneficial but costly new technology, modestly growing real income, but increasing excess burden, uh, that's the economic jargon for the distortion caused by the ever more unsustainable tax burden of both uh, that elderly people are imposing on their children and grandchildren. How do we put all those pieces together? I'm going to leave that to Lawrence and company, but I think it's, they made a great start here, and I found it really fascinating. Thank you. Okay, again, thank you to uh, Lawrence and to, and, to, and to Mark for coming here. I'm going to offer just a few thoughts of my own. Um, first, I'm going to start off with what's right about uh, the concept that Lawrence and his co-authors have put forward, and that is that it recognizes that moral hazard is the main driver of rising health care spending, rising Medicare spending. Seniors enrolled in Medicare because they're spending the government's money consume lots and lots of medical care that they would not consume if it were their own money on the line. And this, this idea devises a way to reduce that moral hazard and, and hopefully government spending, and it raises the prospect or the hope of doing so with, while preserving patients' ability to choose their own course of treatment. So I think it's a, it's a terrific idea. Where I think it falls short is, is not so much uh, of, of the what, but the how of how they'd go about this. It would implement this idea through the political process, which tends not to reward effic greater efficiency, and that's putting it mildly. And I think it, it fails to acknowledge that there is moral hazard in the political process as well that where this idea would be implemented, where political actors demand and get lots of, all sorts of things because they don't bear the cost of uh, those things themselves. Uh, it, and it doesn't advance this innovation within the context of uh, broader Medicare reforms that would reward, uh, uh, that would reward efficiency, what I'll call, uh, uh, for purposes of this discussion, bundled payments to the consumer. And I think that absent those broader Medicare reforms, uh, Medicare reforms along those lines, uh, I don't know that this, uh, I'm highly skeptical that this proposal would produce any savings. And here's a, a few thoughts on why. First, let's assume that questions about the amounts of these negative co-payments and uh, to which services they'll be applied are left to disinterested economists and government bureaucrats. Lawrence uh, and his co-authors uh, uh, make it an assumption somewhere, something close to this when they write that these decisions would be made. Well, I'll quote the sentence for you. Program administrators would be free to choose the eligible treatments and their associated shared savings supplements that maximize program savings. Even with that simplifying assumption, it's easy to see how negative copayments might not reduce Medicare spending. If the negative copayment is too low, then not enough people would switch from the high-cost treatment to the low-cost treatment, and Medicare would just end up paying more for the people who are going to choose the low-cost treatment anyway. Under certain conditions, if the negative copayment is too high and there are lots of people uh, cho uh, choosing the low-cost treatment already, the negative copayments could also increase Medicare spending because the additional payments to patients who would have chosen the low-cost treatment would overwhelm any savings from the switchers. Uh, you can, uh, you know, Lawrence has a, a really, I think slide 17 depicts this really well. So it's not at all clear after, uh, even after the disinterested economists and government bureaucrats conduct their pilot programs that they would uh, get the negative uh, co-payments in that sweet spot between too high and too low. Um, and that's to say nothing of the other decisions that they'd have to get right uh, in order to save Medicare money, such as what should the length of an episode of care be. Uh, but of course, these decisions, uh, you know, we can't make that simplifying assumption in the real world. These decisions aren't going to be left to disinterested economists, economists and government bureaucrats. And although this idea of negative copayments, it's got a certain elegance to it. 
Uh, it hasn't solved the problem that every dollar of wasteful Medicare spending and every dollar of Medicare cuts is a dollar of income to some health care provider. And that health care provider has a lobbyist. And that lobbyist will fight to preserve the, that health care provider's claim on that dollar. So to the extent that negative copayments actually work, the health care providers who make money off the expensive or disfavored treatments will cry foul. And this is what Mark meant when he said the political police will get involved. Lobbyists in this town routinely decry big government uh, or rail against big government when all the government is doing is reducing their subsidies. And so it's not that much of a stretch to imagine that uh, they'll cry death panels or that Medicare is throwing grandma off a cliff or that Lawrence Helmshin is destroying jobs in every congressional district in the country when the government starts subsidizing their competitors rather than uh, directly reducing their subsidies. And these folks will be breathing down Medicare's neck every step of the way that this Medicare tries to implement this program. And, and they've destroyed lots of these po- sort of uh, pilot programs. Some Lots of pilot program, Medicare pro- pilot programs don't work, but even the ones that do don't get applied more broadly because of uh, pressure from lobbyists, including uh, their uh, pilot programs having to do with centers of excellence, uh, reducing the inflated prices that Medicare pays to durable medical equipment manufacturers. In my own research, I found four comparative effectiveness research agencies that Congress has defunded as soon as they produced useful comparative effectiveness research that tells us what works and what doesn't. As it turns out, the the, the folks who make the stuff that doesn't work as well lobby to um, have those agencies, lobby to have those agencies um, defunded. And uh, the graveyards in D.C. are just full of these sorts of pilot programs, uh, uh, most of which fail, but many of which uh, succeed and yet aren't adopted because of the political police. And you can see this happening in the new provisions under Obamacare already. The United States Preventive Services Task Force has been given a lot of responsibility to, uh, uh, to determine what services will be covered and won't. The, so there's been a lobbying campaign to influence their deliberations. Same thing over at the Institutes of Medicine that's going to be determining the minimum benefits package that everyone has to purchase under the individual mandate. You can see it in what's happening with the, the uh, Accountable Care Organization program. This, is, this isn't a pilot program. This is something that Medicare is supposed to implement uh, and, and start enrolling um, or, or, or getting um, providers to participate in on a permanent basis. They put out some regulations that's, uh, that, uh, under which Medicare would actually save some money, and providers are all crying foul. They're balking. They're not going to enroll. They're demanding that they change them. It's because they, those regulations would cut payments to providers, and they're not going to stand for that. So I, I, I think that either we'll get, uh, we won't get accountable care organizations in Medicare, or they won't save any money. And that seems to be the way these things go. So that full quote, actually, from Lawrence and his co-authors reads, Program administers would thus be free to choose the eligible treatments and their associated shared savings payments that maximize program savings without being accused of rationing care. And I'd wager a fancy lunch that that's not true. We don't like it in this country when uh, bureaucrats are free to choose things, uh, if free is the word, because that means they're unconstrained. And if you want to know whether people are going to cry foul about that sort of thing, just look at the largely unconstrained uh, uh, government uh, rationing board that Obamacare created, the so-called Independent Independent Payment Advisory Board. Um, You've got not just Republicans who want to repeal the whole law lining up to get rid of that thing. You've got lots of Democrats uh, lining up to get rid of it, too, because it will throw grandma off a cliff. It will eliminate jobs in my district, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that if we want these sorts of, the sorts of innovations that Lauren is talking about to be adopted more broadly in, in Medicare, um, then I think what we have to do is change the way these 
uh, innovations are um, adopted. We have to enact Medicare reforms that reduce the influence of lobbyists uh, for inefficient providers, reduces their influence, uh, their ability to block these sorts of innovations. So I'll, I'll ask you to imagine bundled payments uh, to providers is, are, are all uh, are in vogue right now. They're all the rage. Uh, they tried them in Massachusetts. It turned out they didn't reduce spending. But I'm going to propose a different type of bundled payment to you, which is a bundled payment to the consumer. Imagine if Medicare looked more like Social Security, where each enrollee receives a cash payment that they could put into a health savings account. They can use that to purchase health insurance or medical care, whatever they don't spend. They can pass on to their heirs. Sicker and uh, as with the Ryan plan, sicker and poorer enrollees would get a larger bundled payment to help them purchase the same basic coverages every, that everyone else would be able to afford. And seniors could purchase any health insurance plan licensed by any of the 50 states, even a state different from their own. Now, I argue that this sort of approach would have all uh, the benefits uh, and of, uh, of the negative copayments proposal and more broadly. Medicare enrollees would be cost conscious about all of their out of pocket spending because they'd be cost and and because they would be cost conscious about their health insurance premiums because the money that purchases their health insurance would be coming out of this health savings account. They, then private health plans would have an incentive to adopt negative copayments if it turns out that those negative copayments encourage uh, seniors uh, to avoid high cost but low value care. And since providers would have a harder time blocking innovations by private health plans, the private health plans would de deliver negative copayments before Medicare ever could, just as they've beaten Medicare to the punch with innovations like bundled payments, global payments, tiered copayments, pay for performance, penalties for never events and other medical errors and so forth. And so the less control I think the government has over uh, how seniors spend this uh, bundled payment or Medicare voucher the less the inefficient providers will be able to block innovations like negative copayments, and the more the market will be able to reward them, or re reward health plans that adopt them. Now, down, there, there are plenty of downsides with this approach to bundled payments as well. Um, well, I wouldn't say plenty of downsides. There will be some criticisms. Uh, would these bundled payments be uh, uh, make Medicare enrollees too cost-conscious? Would they skimp on care, and would that hurt their health? And here I'm going to uh, invoke the, the, the Dartmouth folks. I think they ha they've produced the best research that we have on how much waste there is in Medicare. And they estimate that about one-third of Medicare spending does nothing to uh, improve health or make seniors any happier with their health care. That's one-third that's pure waste, and there may be additional waste on top of that. And I'd encourage you to think of that as a huge margin of safety. When Medicare makes these bundled payments, these, or gives these vouchers to seniors, they would have built in that one-third of pure waste. So seniors could uh, economize. They could reduce their consumption of medical care. They could choose a less comprehensive health plan well, or one that aggr uh, more aggressively manages care. And they would, have, uh, they would be able to reduce their consumption of health care services quite a bit without uh, harming their health overall. Another concern would be that Medicare might not adjust the vouchers exactly perfectly so that sicker or poorer seniors might not get exactly as much uh, as they would need to obtain the targeted amount of coverage. And yet, the sick and the poor would benefit from the enormous pressure that this reform would put on uh, the entire market, on providers and insurers to reduce costs, because every senior would care about every penny that they're spending on health care, as opposed to what happens today. And once again, uh, the, the, the Dartmouth folks, uh, uh, their research is relevant. One th if one-third of Medicare spending um, is, is wasteful, well, then that provides a margin of safety uh, when it comes to risk-adjusting the, the Medicare payment amounts as well. So 
the combined errors of risk adjustment in seniors reducing their health care consumption are highly unlikely, I think, to affect seniors' health in the aggregate. So just to, uh, to conclude, um, I think the short version of, of, of my comments is uh, markets are smart. Government is stupid. And uh, negative co-payments are a good idea. And I want Lawrence to achieve uh, fame and fortune. I don't know if you, I don't, I don't know if you'd get fortune for this idea. And fun. Lots of for fun, uh, for because I want these uh, these negative this negative co-payments concept to be adopted. And I think in order to that happen, in order to to let that happen, we need to get the decision about whether. Uh, health plans will use negative co-payments taken out of Washington, taken out of the political process entirely, because government just isn't good at implementing good ideas. It either kills them outright or saps them of their potential, and that's what I fear will happen to negative co-payments in the context of traditional Medicare. So uh, that's all I had to say, and uh, with that, I'm happy to let uh, uh, Lauren respond to anything that Mark or I have said, or we can turn it right to over to questions. Uh, let me... Go ahead. Let me respond briefly. Um, I really appreciate uh, both Mark's and Mike's comments. Um, <clears throat> uh, we've thought a bit about personalized medicine and how um, genetic predictors for treatment responses can actually um, make this proposal even smarter by because it would predict essentially what your um, reservation level would be at which point you would switch to the lower cost treatment. So there, um, for some cancers, uh, overall effectiveness or superiority of one treatment over another is masking considerable differences in treatment response by, uh, that, that, are, that are explained or correlated with genetic variation. And so if you suddenly find out that the more expensive treatment really isn't that valuable for you, well, in that case, uh, the bad news would be we wouldn't offer you any money to go with a cheaper treatment because... Uh, you would go with it anyway, because when we informed you about it, you would um, uh, you would go with it. Uh, but on the flip side is, if we found out um, you did better with the more expensive treatment, but only marginally so, then we might offer you more. So um, so it, it could um, refine essentially the the schedule that uh, uh, the supplement would be uh, linked to. I I, um, I also. Uh, I guess it's 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 a great insight to to hear that uh, maybe moral hazard isn't the worst thing. Maybe medical innovation is the the biggest cost driver in Medicare. And but I think um, those two are linked. Of course, uh, the more moral hazard you have, the more um, the more uh, readily patients and their providers go with more expensive treatments. The greater the market is for innovating um, and for coming up with expensive treatments, even if they only provide marginal improvements over existing treatments. And I think um, to the extent that we can attack the moral hazard problem, we might also improve the value that we get, the incremental value that we get for the incremental dollar that we spend. Um, I definitely appreciate the uh, all the, the comments about the political feasibility. So my background is in economics. I'm a, I'm not a political scientist, not a psychologist, but there are a lot of issues that um, uh, come up in that arena, and then also in the the whole realm of political economy. So that's um, uh, we 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 deliberately set out to. Um, make this proposal as incrementalist as possible. So to work within all the flawed <laughs> uh, uh, parameters um, and to pr propose something that could be um, 
implemented without major reform or, or major other stakeholders to get behind it. Now, talking about stakeholders, uh, it's true the providers of the expensive treatments, they would not like this idea if they were, um, but we, we could measure how um, effective the idea might be by just measuring their opposition to it because we would, um, uh, if, they, if they're not afraid that moral hazard is really a problem and that patients will defect to the cheaper treatment, then they have nothing to worry about. On the contrary, if they are vehemently opposed, the providers of cheaper treatments, they should be um, opposing in the other direction. So they should, um, they I guess, should duke it out. The, 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 um, the one aspect if we, uh, about the savings, if um, the, the savings are important, but I think at least from a, an economics perspective, it's even more important that we make sure that for whatever money we're spending, we're getting at least as much value out of it. And so to the extent that we're reducing moral hazard, that's going to achieve that, um, even if it means that beneficiaries are being overpaid uh, to some extent. So then um, uh, at least the beneficiaries are getting back what, uh, in some sense, they paid into the system in the first place. Um, and finally, uh, the um, yes, so so that's I, I guess that those are my my major replies. So, if there are any questions from the audience, uh, I'd ask you uh, uh, make a couple of requests for, from you. Wait for the microphone to come to you before you ask your question. Um, identify yourself and any affiliation, uh, and uh, make sure you ask a question. So we've got one on the there. Okay, you got it, Allison. Thank you, Rick. Um, pulling back a little bit on the whole in, uh, insurance idea, because any, any market purist, libertarian, advocate of freedom, tell, knows right off the bat, as soon as you go into a third-party payment system, you've got inefficiencies. So your idea, Mr. Cannon, is more market-oriented, but it's still in the insurance realm. Don't we want to go back to the one to one market system. First thing I would do is we've got an MD-based system. We know that non-MDs, naturopaths, nurses, nutritionists, uh, physician assistants, they're like one third of the price. You've also got the associated legal system costs due to iatrogenic illness, which is much lower in the non-MD sector. So the supply factors, the scope of practice uh, restrictions, licensing restrictions on the nine MDs, that's where I'd go to, f go to first. People having the cash to go and purchase that lower cost care comes in second, and that's where you get to the tax reform, not only replacing the insurance deduction, but all deductions. Because we know that the total tax code cost per year is like $700 billion, according to GAO tax policy summary. So you can give people a, people a larger tax exemption, so they're going to have the cash, lower tax rates, and then you've got um, increased economic growth and more personal income growth, all in comprehensive tax reform, starting out with an optional tax code which is the path of least political resistance. So th those are the things that I would concentrate first from a market purist standpoint. Well, I can comment on, how about I comment on some of that and then Mark, I'll ask you to jump in. 
um, on one point, and that I, I, I certainly think that supply-side regulations, licensing, uh, and scope of practice restrictions in particular are a huge problem in our healthcare sector. In fact, I think that they're an underappreciated reason why we don't have more of these what they call accountable care organizations dotting the landscape. Um, and uh, we're not going to get really robust competition uh, from different delivery systems like accountable care organizations until we reform those uh, uh, um, those regulations as well, or eliminate a lot of those regulations. Uh, that said, I think that um, I would I would reverse the order in uh, which you prioritize uh, healthcare reforms because I think that he who owns the gold makes the rules. And if we put the money back in the hands of the consumers, I think not only will that change consumer behavior, not only will that change provider behavior, but it also help us make the kinds of changes that we wa want to those other regulations like licensing, and you know a whole host of others. Um, uh, not just licensing of clinicians, but licensing of insurance and all the attendant regulations uh, there, certificate of need laws and so forth. Because when the consumer sees the cost of these regulations in their premiums in a way they don't do now, we'll have an additional constituency to get rid of those regulations. As f I, I wanted to ask you, Mark, if you had wanted to comment on the idea of getting away from uh, third-party payment entirely, because I, the gentleman also raised that issue. Uh, I guess that's not my idea of how market would work. A market would be more or less what Mike said. You would have purchasing power, maybe your own, or if we care about you and you're old, maybe we supplement it with a voucher, and you should buy insurance, the best insurance you can find, if that's what you want to do. And my guess is, uh, rather than run the risk of either being impoverished by a high medical bill or being unable to afford life-saving treatment, the great, great majority of people would go ahead and buy insurance. I mean, this is part of the debate we're having about the individual mandate and all of that. Uh, there probably would be a few evil Knievels who would say, I'll go without health insurance. My only uh, requirement for them is then they would have to wear a bracelet that said, in the case of accident or illness, uh, do not take me to the nearest emergency room. I made my. You want to make it a tattoo, I think. Yeah, a tattoo, maybe. Yeah, uh, but but I I think it, it's uh, insurance. Well, so I'm biased, but I think insurance is one of mankind's greatest inventions. But you need to design it to avoid the um, adverse side effects that it causes, uh, most prominent of which is moral hazard. And um, you'll never get rid of it entirely, but, uh, but um, um, getting rid of moral hazard entirely means um, uh, an exposure to levels of uh, financial and personal risk that I think would be both undesired by um, almost everybody and undesirable from a social point of view. Lawrence, did you have anything to add? There's a question on the aisle here, sir. Hi, my name's Chris. My uh, question was for Professor Helpchen. Um My question was in regards to um, potential savings. Um, you, didn't, you didn't give specific numbers. Um, my concern was um, if you look at the rising cost of Medicare that we're going to be experiencing in the next 20 years, my concern was even if you perfect this program, it's only going to be cutting into a very small part of the cost of Medicare. Is that, is that a reality, or can we see significant savings with your plan? Well... <clears throat> I mean, I outlined that uh, this idea is most useful for conditions where the treatment varies widely in cost, where there's little evidence on comparative effectiveness at this point, where there are large numbers of beneficiaries who are choosing the expensive treatment, primarily not on the basis of comparative effectiveness because it doesn't exist, 
but mostly on the basis of cost or some other reasons. And so that we have reason to believe that if they uh, were more fully exposed to the true cost differentials across treatments, they might go with a cheaper treatment without substantially adverse um, outcomes or did worsening outcomes. So um, at this point, it would be pure speculation. I, I, ca I cannot give you a concrete number. I think it, it would be most useful just to, to look at specific case studies um, to see, to also even learn how responsive consumers are to um, payments such as a supplement, and then um, to, to go from there. I will say one, one advantage of greatly reducing moral hazard is then you wouldn't have to listen to economists talking all the time about moral hazard. <laughs> we can concentrate on what is really driving healthcare spending growth. Hi, my name's uh, Eric Downing. I'm an intern with Senator Paul's office. Um, I just kind of want to speak to it for just a minute and then get your reaction. I, the idea, or uh, this, this sounds like it would have some great benefits for medical treatments, such as treatments for like chronic diseases like diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, heart disease, where you could have very, you know, inexpensive treatments such as personal health choices that are that you could do and versus very expensive ones like pharmaceuticals and so on and so forth. It would force, it could encourage patients to do much more, much less costly options. However, I found it interesting that you chose cancer in your, in both of your examples because that seems like the, quite a ethically hairy um, line, line to take because you're, you're possibly encouraging lower income individuals to you know, to to get more money to possibly take treatments that are lower, of, of, treatments that are less effective. So I'm, I'm unsure how you get around that in in just the context of things like like cancer. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit? Does that make sense? I think it already happened in a gentle sort of way. What I predicted. What did you? Well, that the, the concern is that uh, that. Even this proposal is susceptible to charges of rationing care, and sir, and 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 you know you ask the question in a, in a very in a very delicate and you know respectful way. You didn't yell death panels or anything, but that's the sort of thing that can happen if it, if it looks like that. Is um, that you know someone someone could look at this and say, oh, so wait a second, lower income people get money to pay for a less expensive and perhaps less effective treatment. Okay, so first, so, first of all, everyone gets. Gets, we, everyone gets money. Um, you, you, um, now, lower-income people might be more receptive to the idea, um, in part because uh, they have low incomes. That's 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 true. I'm, I I caution that we want, would want to make sure, uh, and this would be part of a pilot program to um, guarantee that everyone's fully informed about the trade-offs. So, what I call patient competence. And everyone's also fully, fully free of third-party pressures. So um, the um, so they they would um, the 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 scenario that I have in mind is a lot of beneficiaries. About half of them are at or two hundred below two hundred percent of the federal poverty level. 
um, they they have access to a gold-plated medical care benefit, and they can't fix the roof on their house. And so there is a, a you know you might say this is an imbalance in the resources that they have access to. So this would be one way for them to to balance this. Um, so my joke about MBAs was intended to be semi-serious. I think it might be smarter to start off by saying you'd only be eligible for this if your income was above a certain level. Uh, and we'll try it out on people who would be less subject to the charge that they're being bribed to forego needed care. That's what your senator will hear. Uh, and uh, we'll see how that goes. And it's not, it's actually what's in health reform, right? In health reform, if you are a low-income person, you cannot have a bronze plan, right? You have to have a plan with a higher actuarial value. Uh, so we're only letting uh, those people subject themselves to the strongest, even though they're not all that strong, uh, cost containment incentives in the health reform if, when and if it ever comes to place, uh, if their incomes are above a certain level. Um, and uh, I, 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 well, again, we're, we're three economists talking about politics here, but I, I think that that might be a way to diffuse uh, this concern about, um, which, is, uh, which is legitimate, that, uh, that uh, the, 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 the trade-offs that may be fully rational for a low-income person to make may not be what we want from a societal perspective. But if, if MBAs or high-income people or even some of those people with low incomes have a lot of wealth, so those numbers are a little de deceiving about how well off the seniors are. But whatever they are, if the people with wealth and income are willing to um, uh, opt for, in return for a lower premium, um, uh, uh, a less generous plan, or one that offers them stronger incentives to economize, um, uh, you know, they're American citizens. It's a free country, isn't it? No. And, and my, my only point was that well, if you look at what happened during the debate over the, the health care law, uh, opponents were, were screaming death panels about two provisions. And one of those provisions would have just had Medicare pay physicians to counsel, uh, you know, to have end-of-life counseling sessions or discussions with their patients uh, about w how much care they really wanted at the end of life. And this wasn't, and to be sure, it was, it was rationing. The, uh, the idea was uh, have these conversations, and so patients that don't want lots and lots of intensive care at the end of life will be able to avoid that. And so their, their consumption would better match their preferences. But to, to ration is to limit consumption. So that is rationing. Although it's the most consumer-directed form of rationing, all of the, the second most consumer-directed form of rationing I can imagine, the first most within the, the framework of, the, uh, of, the, of, of, the, uh, of changing the um, uh, current Medicare benefit structure, working within that framework. The most consumer-directed form of rationing I can imagine is what Lawrence has put forward. But even proposals like that for consumer-directed rationing will, will be decried as though they were government rationing, I think, is, is, one, of the, is one of the dangers here and, and why I, I fear that good ideas like this will not be implemented within Medicare. Uh, Justin with the Men's Health Network. Um, just a logistic question that might address what he was concerned with. Does only the cheapest option have to be subsidized by the program, or can all options but the most expensive be some way subsidized with a small payment? That way you have a full spectrum where I know that although I'm not going with the cheapest option, 
I'm going with something in the middle. I'm still getting paid for it. That way, someone in a low-income situation would still have some type of incentive to choose not only the, the cheapest plan, but something that could be effective as well. Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, the, the most transparent way to do it would be to say, um, we have an allowance, like a notional allowance, and then you get the difference between that allowance and the actual cost of the tree. So if the allowance is 2000 and the cost is 1500 you get 500 If the cost of the treatment is 1800 you get the difference 200 So that would be the most transparent. But it, it wouldn't have to be that. You could uh, refine the, the schedule um, depending on how sensitive beneficiaries are to the, the size of the supplement and how many choose it. So you can incentivize some treatments more than others. But that would, you know, you would compromise on the transparency a little bit because then the question would be, well, why are you choosing different supplements that are not, uh, you know, that don't increase one for one with the um, decrease in the cost? Okay, and I think we will make that our last question. I want to uh, thank our speakers again uh, and ask all of you to join us upstairs for a reception in our winter garden. Thanks.